This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freaking Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Buy the ticket, take the ride. Hunter S. Thompson. Move faster, a voice shouted from behind. Hey, a-hole, if you haven't noticed, there's a dozen people in front of us moving just as slowly, I thought. Not a word escaped my lips. I had to make oxygen choices at 17,000 feet. Onward and upward, we continued. I stayed close to LB. Daniel and TJ trailed a few paces behind. Our headlamps illuminated only the path in front of us. Any excess light was absorbed into the black abyss below. We marched silently through the darkness for hours, the air thinning with every breath. As we climbed, more than half a dozen people passed us on their way down. They hadn't summited. They were turning around. We finally reached the glacier at 6 a.m. By this point, we had climbed to 19,000 feet. The eastern sky was on fire. One man, 
who was presumably suffering from serious altitude sickness, was being helped down by three climbers. He didn't look good. This was no joke. We were on a real high-altitude climb. And while he was almost inside of the summit, Chris Brindley Jr. was battling himself and the elements on the side of a mountain in the Himalayas. Could he get there? I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Mirpod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. All right, welcome back to another episode of the John Freaking Muir Pod. I know I said a couple of episodes ago that we'd be taking a break between seasons one and two, but now I'm starting to think the heck with seasons. As long as I have content, I'm going to keep bringing it to you. There's no need to sit on good stories for weeks on end for the sake of having clear-cut podcast seasons. And in that spirit, I want to let you know that we've got some great content for this episode. We have a very special guest on the pod tonight. Please help me in welcoming Chris Brindley Jr. to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Chris is a self-described multidisciplined adventure athlete. We're going to ask him to define what exactly that means in a little bit here. But that was not his always that was not always his chosen profession. Chris was an art director for an ad agency in the Los Angeles area and was moving up in the ranks when he decided to leave cubicle life behind and live a life of adventure. That decision has led him across the world on amazing adventures and expeditions, all of which he documents on his website, chrisbrindleyjr.com, and on his social media. His photos have graced the pages of many publications, and he has been the author and subject of many articles. Welcome to the pod, Chris, and thank you for joining me. Thanks. It's great to be here. So yeah, when I reached out to you uh, via Instagram, you got back fairly quickly with, without a hesitation, said, hey, this, is, this sounds like a, a cool idea. I'd love to come on. Uh, what, uh, I, I know you're a storyteller from, uh, from your website and from, from uh, your Instagram, but uh, I'm really excited to have you on board tonight and, and telling some of your stories. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to be here. Podcasts are a lot of fun. I think it's a great way to reach different audiences and to communicate different stories and ideas. And anytime that I get an opportunity to be on a podcast, I like to seize the day, if you will. And I'm super stoked about being here on John Freaking Mirror. Fantastic. 
Hey, if you have uh, listened to the pod before, you'll know that we have a segment that kind of appears at the end of, of each episode. It's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And so I want to give you a heads up on that because what that is, is just through the natural free flow of conversation back and forth between us tonight, we're going to pick out a little tidbit that we can share with our listeners as the pro tip inside of the week, something they can learn from, from your stories and your adventures so that they can be better prepared when they go on and take out in the outdoors next time. It's perfect. I love it. Okay. So when we get towards the end of the episode, I'll be asking you to, to share your, your pro tip with them. I'm on it. Okay. Hey, first question. First question of the night. Do you listen to the John Freakin' Mirpod? This will be my first episode to watch and listen <laughs> to the John Freakin' Mirpod. All right. So very good. I'm excited to be introduced. Well, after you're, you're so impressed with how well this goes tonight, I'm sure you can get, get on and listen to the back catalog there. Perfect. <laughs> some, more, uh, some more to listen to during my long slogging training hikes. Nice, nice. What is your next adventure, by the way? So I'm planning a couple different series of some micro adventures throughout the Sierra Nevada. I had a big, a couple big expeditions planned um, in kind of Europe and Eurasia throughout the autumn, but then obviously the world had different ideas. And so as everybody during this time, I definitely adapted. Um, so that being said, I've been living in South Lake Tahoe and it's really great to be in such close proximity to what is arguably on range in the world, the Sierra Nevada, which is kind of where I cut my teeth. I did my first backpacking trips here, uh, my first mountaineering trips, some of my first climbing trips, and some of my absolute best days that I've ever had have been right here in the Sierra Nevada. But that being said, it's been about three years since I've had the chance to get out and do anything in this range just due to different expeditions and some time spent living abroad and, and different travels. And so I'm really stoked to be in a great proximity to the high Sierra and then have like some of the lower Sierra here in Ohio to access for kind of daily and weekly training cycles. And eventually, probably kind of starting next month, I'll be going out and doing some off-trail backpacking, uh, climb some more alpine ice trails. I climbed a couple last, uh, about two weeks ago, which were really fun. And then uh, a couple kind of like ridge scrambles and some easy alpine solos. So just some micro adventures to kind of keep myself entertained and to appreciate the Sierra for all that's grander. And then the next kind of big adventure that I would say that I'm in for, this will be my first season coming up as a hunter. And I'm going to be taking my backcountry skills and my skills as an alpinist and mountaineer and through the multi-sport adventures and applying them to the discipline of backcountry, big game, spot and stock style hunting. Something that I've come to realize during this pandemic and during the last couple of years of travels is that we as humans are largely disconnected from our sustenance and our food sources. And that is something that I want to rectify through my own practices in my own life. So the last couple of years I've trended more toward this idea of vegetarianism and have like started to reduce meat from my diet. But 
meat is something that for my own body and my own performance, I do feel that it is important, but I don't want to participate in in farming um, agriculture at all. And the most ethical way to source meat protein is through hunting. And so with this practice, there's this very connected nature that you must kind of involve yourself in to potentially source animal protein from the wild. And so that is something that I've been kind of training for um, physically and mentally, and also doing a lot of education and a lot of studying and research and taking hundreds of courses and learning about uh, different tracking methods and different approaches to backcountry hunting and kind of taking all these tools that I have, the skill and experience that I have from being in the mountains largely for climbing and, and backcountry off trail travel and then applying them into this discipline that would result in not just me taking some type of personal growth from experience, but rather potentially taking something that could literally sustain my life and the lives of those that I care about through protein sourcing of wild animals. And so essentially I'm going to be dedicating the entire autumn season to in Colorado, which is a state where I'm a resident, uh, with both archery and rifle. So that's uh, what I'm training for. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot of new knowledge and information. And I've just been diving headfirst into this discipline to uh, hopefully enable the greatest chance of success because it's definitely much like mountaineering, something where success is not at all guaranteed. Yeah, you've got a lot lined up. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground right there. Holy cow. Um, yeah, I would say that we are we are very disconnected from our, our food source. Uh, you know, most, most the vast majority of us, 99.9% of us go to the market to get our food and, and have no idea what the real conditions are like and, and what that's all about. So this, this would be really interesting. I, I look forward to, to following you on that and uh, following your stories on that. Absolutely. And, and we are lucky. You and I are lucky to be living in a state that has the Sierra Nevadas. That's where most of my experiences has uh, come from, and I have really enjoyed it. it. They are spectacular mountains to to hike through. Unparalleled. Yeah. So I, I mentioned in the intro that you know you were not on this career trajectory uh, early in your life. In fact, you were you were uh, in a cubicle at an advertising agency. And I, I think I saw somewhere on your website that, you know, a voice inside your head said, hey, go backpacking. And this is something that you had not done before. And so yeah. I, I'm really intrigued by that because I think that there are moments in our lives where uh, life just reach at, reaches out to us and speaks to us. And if you pay attention and you listen, it can take you in a whole new direction. Absolutely. Um, to that point, I was 25 years old. I grew up in a rural part of Arkansas. My family was all from the Central Valley of California, but we moved to the country to kind of just have a different pace of life when I was five years old. So I spent my entire childhood and kind of teenage years out there. Um, went to university on the East Coast and a couple of different places. And then when I graduated college in 2011, I got an internship in Los Angeles. So I went back to California, went back to the city, which was kind of always my intention. And while I was growing up in Arkansas, we didn't have a whole lot of um, 
kind of urban access by by any means it was very rural even the towns were very rural and so I spent a lot of time outside as a kid but it was mostly just kind of playing around in the property that we owned about 25 acres with some woods and a pond and letting my imagination run wild on that and I think part of me always envisioned like going out and and kind of wandering through these vast expanses. I I loved the Lord of the Rings movies, which came out when I was uh, probably 12 or 13 and was really inspired by those and the idea. But where I lived, there just weren't these great, vast Western expanses. And when I was living and working in Los Angeles, my life very much revolved around being a young urban creative. I lived in a loft, I rode a motorcycle, I do a lot of photo shoots in my free time, I ride the motorcycle around for fun and would spend my weekends eating out and watching movies and, and just kind of doing things revolving around the city. And all this time I had uh, never been abroad, I had never been outside of the US during college. Uh, a lot of people would kind of take that opportunity to study abroad. I a was involved in varsity athletics and so that kind of tied me into a season and then uh my brother came to university with me uh after a couple of years so then i wanted to spend my last couple of years there on the campus with him and so i never kind of had this opportunity to travel outside of the country and it was something i always aspired to do and i always wanted to do and when i was around 25 years old my best friend from university uh another guy who lived in LA, Ori Spear, we were planning this trip to Japan. We wanted to go there, uh, experience kind of the this overstimulation of Tokyo, go ride motorcycles through the mountains and, and just kind of get this very uh, robust cultural experience that I think both of us really desired. Um, the issue was we collectively couldn't save up enough money to take this trip because Japan's really expensive. My uh, a friend was a freelancer at the time. It was kind of struggling through some stuff. And so I had this idea. I was like, well, you know, let's take our vacation time. We both have it. And let's figure out something local that we can do instead. And I didn't know what that looked like. And I didn't know what it would be. But while I was sitting in my cubicle at RPA at this advertising agency, that's when I heard that voice. And this voice very clearly said, go backpacking, go to Yosemite. And I had no idea what Yosemite even was. I I knew it was in California because my family was from the Central Valley. So I'd spend these childhood summers going out and visiting them. And I would see signs for Yosemite. I I would see these snow-covered peaks off in the background from where they lived, but was always curious, but had never had the opportunity to venture out to those. And so having this little voice speaking to me, I did the the first thing that came to mind. I got on Google and I typed in Yosemite and got on image searches. And what absolutely blew my mind was the fact that one of the grandest geological features on the planet was a five hour drive away from where I was living in California. And so Ori and I planned this backpacking trip, having no idea how to do any of it, but I spent a lot of time researching online and took some of this money that I'd saved for our vacation and bought my own backpacking gear because I just had a feeling that it was going to be something that I would get into. And so the, uh, the trip came around and it was 
uh, seven years ago this week that we took that first backpacking trip into Yosemite, into the wilderness. And it was a profound experience that radically changed my life and shaped the, the way that I thought and the goals that I aspired to and how I wanted to, to pursue my path. And it was that critical moment while sitting in the backcountry on a bluff at 9,000 feet farther away into the wilderness that I had ever been. And we looked across this gap uh, through a canyon and I saw a mountain across the way, much like the one in your background. And it had snow on this peak in July. And I had never seen snow on a mountain before up until that point. And that just sparked something inside of me. And I looked at Ori and I said, I want to climb that mountain. It was Mount Hoffman. To this day, I've I've yet to climb it, but uh, I think I might go get on top of it this summer. Goals, good to have a goal still out there for you. So, what what kind of uh, what kind of gear did you use? What, what you went oh. out and you bought the backpacking equipment. You remember, do you remember any any of the items that you got? Oh, I sure do. It was uh, basically I I got this backpacking gear list from some website REI or something, and they described these different lengths of trips and said that for the different lengths of trips, you needed larger or smaller pack depending on how long the trip would be. And so me not knowing anything about this, I went out and bought this 75, 80 liter pack because we wanted to do a week long backpacking trip. And then I got a zero degree synthetic sleeping bag because I didn't want to be cold and it weighed six pounds. I had a uh, Bear Grylls survival knife and a survival hatchet because you never know what you're going to run into out there and just had all of this stuff loaded up and the pack probably weighed 70 pounds oh wow and we hauled this up to the top of upper yosemite falls we started at the trailhead at noon on the day we went into in july it was 80 plus degrees sun baking down on us and it was just miserable but we loved it anyway. And uh, we had planned on essentially doing this 36 mile yo-yo style kind of route and essentially had broken it down to about six miles a day because that seemed like kind of a reasonable distance to go carrying all this stuff and mm -hmm. I, I didn't know any better. And so we got up to the top of up your, Upper Yosemite Falls and continued into the backcountry to where we could find a place in the wilderness zone so we could do our first night camping. Mm -hmm. Maybe made it about eight miles on what was a very difficult day. And then the next morning, we got to our second night stopping point by like 10 a.m. And so I was like, we can't stop now. We just got to keep going. And so we finally decided to stop for the day after clocking in about 15 or 16 miles and uh, found this amazing bluff to kind of perch up on and uh, slept there. That was when I had that profound moment mm -hmm. staring off at Mount Hoffman. And then the next day we only had 12 or 13 miles to go and we had just done a 16 mile day. So I was like, let's just hike the whole thing now. And so we did this, you know, what I thought was going to be a six day trip in two and a half days. And it just left me wanting more. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was how all that started. Yeah, plans go out the window sometimes, right? You have your plan, you've got it all drawn up, and then you get out there and things change, whether for, for, for the better or, or for worse, and you just have Absolutely. to adjust. That's a, that's a great story. And there is nothing 
there is nothing on the planet quite like being out in the back country, uh, being at a spot where the only way to get there is to put in the work and just be out in the middle of that majesty. It's incredible. Absolutely. One of the best things in the world. So what, what has been your longest backpacking trip? Uh, my longest backpacking trip, I would say, would probably be the Sierra High Route. Um, I've not done any kind of the more typical through hikes that a lot of people tend to gravitate towards. Um, one reason is the amount of time that it would take to do a big route like the PCT. I just, um, I tend to think in more ob- about objectives that are usually shorter and more gear intensive and more exciting to me. But I do love being out in the backcountry and helping them over your days. The longest trip that I've ever done uh, that was backpacking specific would have been on the Sierra High Route. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it is essentially the climber's version of the John Muir Trail that was developed by a Yosemite climber uh, named Steve Roper. And he essentially designed this route as kind of a backpacking trip for climbers. And so in 2015, I went out and did uh, what was most of this route. We missed about a 15 mile section at the end due to logistics, but we hiked uh, around 195 miles over the course of 15 days. Uh, Most people will take about a month to do this trip and the author recommends breaking it up into week-long section hikes, but we wanted to just kind of do it all in one go. And so we just kind of went out there and charged through it. And it was about 195 miles and only about 40 of those were on trail on the John Muir Trail. The rest of it was off trail travel, a lot of kind of orienteering, Um, John Muir Trail, you cross, I think, over three passes. We kind of scrambled over 32 or 33 passes on this trip. And so it was literally, you'd go up one pass, you get to the top, and you'd look across the valley, you'd see the next pass you had to get to, drop down the valley, scrambling. A lot of it was kind of like class two stuff, a lot of boulder hopping and talus surfing and kind of get across down into one valley, you cross country hike across this valley, just like through this pristine untouched wilderness that nobody really sees because it's off in the middle of nowhere and it's not on a trail. And then you have your pass to go up that pass, get to the top of that one and you just repeat. And there were days where we would cross three or even four passes in a single day. Um, Mileage on that, if, for the couple days that were, we were on trail, we'd probably put down around 25 miles a day, kind of on the, the high side. Mm-hmm. If we were totally off trail, maybe we could go 12 or 13 miles because probably I'd say 60 miles of that whole trip was just scrambling over like talus and, and boulder hopping. So a lot of it was pretty slow going. But what was incredible about that experience was with the exceptions of a single resupply point, um, kind of going through Mammoth and the two days that we spent on trail, we saw, I believe, three people the entire trip because it was all kind of cross country through the back country where there just weren't other people. And so there was this amazing wilderness perspective and, and, and sense of wonderment and, and isolation. You really felt like you were very deep out there. And that was 
uh, a really special trip because the Sierra Nevada are one of the most unique ranges in the lower 48 states because the the divide is totally contiguous. You can go for 400 miles and have this very unbroken, very contiguous, rugged range that you're contending with where um, kind of having spent a decent amount of time in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, you know, you'll have this amazing, pretty rugged range, but then it's broken up by a big valley and there's a highway going through it. And it's just these patches of mountains. And in the Sierra, you've got this unobstructed range that's very jagged, very rugged. And the Sierra High only dips below tree, t- tree line a few times. And so most of it, you're up in the Alpine 10,000 plus feet and you're just getting all the goods, you know, which to me is kind of being above tree line. I love being up in the Alpine and, and being amongst the high peaks and the perspectives that those afford. And that was a backpacking trip that really just enabled me to kind of maximize that time above tree line. And it was unparalleled. Sounds incredible. Uh, most of your time spent above 10,000 10, feet, which is the tree line, right? And uh, does not sound like it was for a, uh, this is a trip for a novice. I mean, you're putting in some, some grueling days on that route. It was, it was one of the tougher experiences that, I, that I've had physically. Um, I had been traveling and doing some climbing and, and backpacking and stuff in the Himalaya beforehand. And then most of the spring, I was in Southeast Asia riding motorcycles around and just doing more like day hikes. And when I got back to the States after that trip in, in April of tw- 2015, I did a little bit of mountaineering, a little bit of climbing, but I hadn't done any like high aerobic thing, uh, kind of any highly aerobic, long extended endeavors. And this was before I really understood benefits of training for aerobic endeavors. And so I kind of just went into this experience off the couch and figured I'd just get fit along the way. And I did, but it was brutal by the end of it. My body, I think, had had so much that it just crashed. And for two days, I like passed out and had cold sweats and like stomach aches. And my body was just like hating me. And uh, since then, I've kind of learned my lesson and I, I know better now but that was kind of representative of how tough it was in the moment because we, we just had to get up and move every single day. Your body adapts and, and that's kind of what happened. But at the end of it, I just crashed so hard. Yeah. I find that your, your body does what it has to do, but when you, when the end is in sight, especially, I mean, when you know the trip is almost over or when you know you've just finished, everything seems to just break down and they're like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm done for a while. Absolutely. So now my approach is very different. I might train four or five or six months for a similar type of endeavor as that. And it's much more incremental along the way. And the result is I'm better equipped to do that particular event, but also the recovery period for an event like that is much easier. And I might only need a couple days or a week maximum to recover from something like that because I spent all this time like building up my fitness incrementally. So for the last few years, I've been working with an Alpine specific coach to train in that specific capacity to to build aerobic endurance that's kind of uh, paired with mountain specific strength to better able 
uh, better enable me to, to handle those types of really hard outputs. And that's something I, I can't recommend enough. If you're looking to do a big trip like that, start thinking about it two or three months ahead of time and prepare yourself. And it'll be a much better experience during the event, but then also the recovery period will be so much easier to cope with. You know, I've already heard two or three good candidates, good solid candidates for pro tip inside of the week. So this is, this is going to be very uh, informative and helpful to, uh, the, to our listeners out there. Hey, when we come back after the break here, we're going to get down to uh, what exactly is a multidisciplined adventure athlete. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is best-selling indie author Keith Foskett, and if I'm not enjoying the great outdoors, I'm listening to the John Freaky Mule podcast. All right, welcome back. So we know you got your start in backpacking. That voice was very specific, and it told you to go backpacking, and it also told you the location, go to Yosemite, and you were hooked from that point on. Maybe, maybe in the future that that voice could tell you like the lotto numbers or something. So you could, you know, finance your trips and not have to worry about it. But um, (laughs) so how did you graduate from backpacking to being a multidisciplined adventure athlete? And what, what exactly does that entail? I know I've seen on your website uh, and your pictures and your videos, I've seen you on the side of mountains uh, doing mountaineering. I've seen, it looks like rock climbing as well. uh, Skiing. So tell me, tell me all about this multidisciplined adventure athlete thing. Absolutely. So uh, from that backpacking trip, it was an experience where I got into the backcountry, got into the wilderness, and I, I saw these snow-covered peaks off in the distance. But for the most part, we spent the entirety of that trip in the subalpine. There were a couple times where we kind of popped out on the edge of treeline, but we were always at treeline. And I remember looking across at Mount Hoffman and just wanting to be close to jagged looking mountains that had snow. And so about four months later, I planned, uh, maybe three months later, kind of towards the end of autumn, I planned another backpacking trip to a section of Sequoia National Park that would take me into the high Sierra. And on this trip, I learned that there were these things you could go over called passes And oftentimes there were trails over these passes and the passes were essentially low points between a couple of mountains. And so I planned this trip to, to go over three different passes on a loop. And I knew that would allow me the opportunity to get close to mountains, to see them up close and to touch them and to feel them and, and to walk amongst the jagged rocks. And so I planned this, this loop trip there in the autumn. And at that point, you know, I got a little wiser to my kit and I, I picked up a a lighter weight, lower capacity backpack and a a lighter synthetic sleeping bag and left the hatchet and the survival knife behind and, and kind of dialed myself in a little bit more for this next big trip. And on that one spent I think three nights in the backcountry and four days doing this loop and, and covered some additional distance in comparison and, and really started to develop some efficiencies through that. But just looking at these mountains from the passes, I knew that it still wasn't enough. I knew that I still had this desire and this calling to climb mountains. And at the same time, I knew that I wouldn't be satisfied just hiking up mountains. 
I, I wanted to to endeavor into something technical and I wanted to to climb snow. And while I was uh, kind of working in my cubicle job and, and thinking about all these things, I started taking weekend backpacking trips into the mountain ranges around Southern California because I discovered there was some really great wilderness access that was only a 45 minute motorcycle ride away. And so I'd take my backpacking kit and I'd, I'd go up into the mountains every weekend, or I'd go to Joshua tree and started learning how to ultralight backpack during the winter when I didn't require a whole lot of gear and I could get away with just like a ground cloth and a, a sleeping bag. And so I started to kind of like hone these different disciplines and different kits. And I got on, uh, one of the Southern California mountains, um, colloquially known as Mount Baldy, which you're probably familiar with, uh, right after a snowstorm around Thanksgiving. And it was my oh, first wow. time to ever be on top of a mountain and also in the snow on a mountain. And so did this hike and it was very exciting for me. And I knew that it was a step in the right direction. And I, I really did enjoy this experience of being in the snow. And so I started doing more research and I was like, well, you know, backpacking doesn't have to end just because winter arrives. And so I figured out that if I had some snowshoes and a sturdier tent, I could do winter backpacking. And so I planned another trip to Yosemite around Christmas time and took my brother along on this trip and we went snow camping and it was my first time to do that. And so I kind of continued to cut my teeth on, on these backpacking trips and continued venturing out and found myself um, hiking up to the top of San Gorgonio Mountain, which is the highest point in California, south of the Sierra. Did that in the snow and winter camping along the way. And so really kind of started to, to trend toward this direction, but it was all still hiking. And I knew that I wanted to climb. And at the same time, I knew that climbing, that mountaineering would be a discipline that came with uh, a great amount of potential objective hazards and uh, a lot of learning required and knowledge required to go out and do that. And I knew that there, there could be dangers associated with that just from kind of looking out at this stuff and, and from a little bit of winter backpacking and, and knowing how, like, you know, if your boots get wet when it's cold and they get frozen, you know, there, there are these different elements you have to contend with. And so I, I decided that the best approach for me to pursue the path that I, I knew I was developing this passion for would be to take a course with professionals who could teach me everything and, and literally show me the path to becoming a mountaineer. And so I think at that point I got back on Google and I searched how to become a mountaineer. And what I found was a course from American Alpine Institute, which is one of kind of the foremost climbing instructor and guide service companies in the U.S. And so I got on there and I, I looked at their site and I, I, I found a, a mountaineering program, winter mountaineering in the Sierra is what it's called. And I sounded, uh, I, I, I saw that and that was exactly, I knew what I wanted to do. And essentially it involved a winter summit of Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the lowest 48. And they would teach you all the skills along the way over the course of this five day program. And I knew that's what I needed to continue to pursue this endeavor. So I signed up for this course 
and kind of continued to to do these hikes in Southern California and these backpacking trips and just kind of like developing my my own kit and getting used to carrying a pack and, and camping and, and figuring all of this stuff out. And then March came around and I took this course and over the period of these five days, I learned an immense amount from the instructor, a man named Ian McKelleny, who guides in the Sierra, kind of specializes there. And he's one of the most badass alpinists in the Sierra. He was one of the part of the team to do the first winter traverse of the Palisade range, which is like pretty hardcore stuff. Mm -hmm. He's total badass. And so this was the guy who essentially was instructing me on how to become a mountaineer. And so it was while I was on this course that I finally got on top of a mountain by technical means using crampons and an ice axe and connected to a rope and, and traveling through technical terrain. And that was finally this kind of a, a realization of this path that I had begun just eight months before. And around the same time, I kind of realized that my destiny did not lie in that cubicle in Los Angeles that I was destined to pursue vast expanses and, and great unknowns. And this mountaineering course was uh, a big part of that journey for me. So are, are you serious? We're talking about eight months being removed from the cubicle and you are in mountaineering gear going up, uh, up Whitney in, in the winter? At this point, I was still in the cubicle, but it was uh, about eight months past my first ever backpack. Wow. Wow, that is that is a that is a rapid rise through uh, being a first time backpacker all the way up to now. You know, uh, is it alpinism? Is it mountaineering? How, what what is the correct term? Uh, that at that point, I would say is more mountaineering. Um, okay. The discipline that I'm most intrigued by now is alpinism, which is kind of like a form of mountaineering, but tends to skew more toward technical routes. Um, but if you think that was a fast trajectory, you should hear what happens next. I'm, I'm all ears. Let's hear it. So uh, I took this mountaineering course in the middle of March, went up this first peak, um, was totally hooked on that. And so right afterward, uh, the next weekend, I went back to San Gorgonio and solo snow climbed up this bowl on the back, taking the skills I had learned from that and uh, and really got to kind of put these skills to the test closer to home. And that was really cool. But within six months from that mountaineering trip, I had quit my job at RPA, left the cubicle, and took off for the North Cascades to go make an attempt on Mount Baker, um, which is the snowiest peak in the world. And it's this big glaciated peak. It was my first time on a glacier, first time seeing glaciers. Um, on that one, I was with a guide in our team almost made it to the summit. We had maybe another hundred meters to go to the summit plateau, but visibility was bad. The storm was kind of coming through. And so we didn't quite make it. So we had to go back down, but it was a very quick lesson. That's part of mountaineering. You know, you don't always get to the summit and the important thing is getting back down, but that was essentially to kick off what became a seven and a half month trip around the world. Um, I essentially, let my lease expire, sold off my things, quit my job and took off with the intention of throwing myself into the world on every type of adventure that I could fathom for this kind of undefined amount of time ahead of me. And that November, I found myself in Nepal and was trekking at 
you know, 5,500 meters and decided that I wanted to climb my first 6,000 meter peak, which uh, in imperial measurements, the, the route that I climbed, the, the peak, the summit was around 20,189 feet. And so uh, this was my goal for this trip. And that was uh, just six months after, six, seven months after taking this first mountaineering course. Wow, that is incredible. Uh, I, know, I know the listeners out there, I want to know, um, how do you finance all this? How do, how, do, how, do you, how do you pay the bills? How do you, how do you pay for the airline tickets, so the gear, the training, everything else? So that's a really great question. You know, going into this, I, it became a math problem in a math equation. Um, I had a friend who lived in Munich and we'd been talking about doing some kind of mountaineering trip in the Alps. Uh, he lived pretty close to Cool Peak. And at this point I'd started to kind of dive into mountaineering, was starting to kind of discover what was out there. And this trip we were looking at was a traverse along the Mont Rosa range. And it would have taken us about 10 days. And I really wanted to do it. Around the same time, this other guy that I knew from LA, um, invited me to go backpacking in Iceland, just kind of like, you know, European style backpacking probably would involve some hiking and stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool too. But I'm wanting to do this mountaineering trip in the Alps. And so I kind of realized that with my two weeks of paid vacation, there would be no feasible way for me to do both of these things. I essentially had to kind of pick one or the other, um, not just from the perspective of time, but also finances, because I had uh, a lease in Los Angeles and, and rent was expensive and all of these things. And so I was trying to wrap my head around this problem. Like, how could I have these multiple experiences that I knew were going to be very important and developmental for me? And the solution came uh, one day while I was in the shower and I thought to myself, you know, if I just let my lease expire and move out of my apartment and I don't have that expense that I have to continue paying, my two weeks of vacation pay, instead of being good for two weeks, I could essentially stretch it into two months without having this lease expense. And so that was kind of the first piece of this equation. And so at that point, I had this, this idea that if I took my two-week vacation time, I could afford to do a two-month trip um, as far as having that stretch to kind of cover my expenses. And then at that point, I just started figuring out ways that I could cut back on my expenses. Um, getting rid of Netflix, like not eating out, foregoing the Starbucks drinks, um, picked up some freelance work on the side that I could do after hours. I sold my bass guitar. I, I kind of started taking all these measures to help me generate some cash that I could essentially travel off of. And I traveled as long as the money held out on that first trip, which ended up being about seven and a half months. So it was a kind of a company savings of minimizing my expenses. And then while I was on that seven and a half month trip, you know, the, uh, the flights were the big expenses, but I was able to find some pretty good deals kind of having flexible dates, but also on that trip, because I knew I needed to extend my money as long as possible. I was incredibly frugal. Like there were like while traveling in Iceland, you know, I think we stayed in 
in two hostels the entire night. It was a friend of me. And the rest of the time, we were camping out in the wild. And it would be terrible weather, like 60-mile-per-hour winds. And we'd still be camping and that stuff just because it was virtually free. And there were nights where we'd take a bus to another part of the island and we'd show up and it didn't want to pay $100 for a hotel room. So we'd go sleep under and got a little dirtbaggy in that way. But it was uh, this character building experience, but it also allowed me to save money, which enabled a seven and a half month trip instead of a two or three months trip. So right. but at the, but Chris, Chris, at the end of seven and a half months, I mean, you, you can't go back to your job and say, Hey, I'm back. And they say, Hey, Chris, welcome back. Here's, here's, here are the keys. Uh, keep earning that paycheck. I mean, what, what you obviously at some point had to sever ties with, with your employer, correct? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and then what is the what is the new source of income to keep to keep this going? Because you've been all over the world now. There was no sabbatical at that point. Um, I I full on quit and I, I walked away and I had every intention while on this seven and a half month experience to carve out a career for myself as a professional adventure storyteller. And so during the seven and a half month trip, I'd go out and do some type of expedition or some type of trip. And maybe it would last a week, maybe it would last a month in the case of the ones in Nepal. And then I would spend weeks just literally tied to my computer in a cafe in Pokhara, Nepal, or in Chiang Mai, Thailand, like writing up stories and editing photos and sending off blog posts and just trying to find ways to get my name out there, to get my stories out there. And it was a lot of hustling. And so for those seven and a half months, it was like pedal to the metal. I, I rarely rested. I rarely stopped. And I just went kind of full on. And when I got back from that seven and a half month trip, I knew that there was no time to let up. So I just kind of kept hammering. And in a way, there was this semi-serendipitous experience. While in Vietnam, I was riding my motorcycle and somehow I lost my bag off the back that had my camera gear, my computer gear and everything. And I spent hours searching for it after. I, I didn't go very far before I realized that it was gone and it had totally disappeared. Like all my equipment was gone. But Fortunately, I had a really good photography insurance policy on all of that equipment, um, well beyond what you can get with a standard travel insurance policy. And so essentially, I got a check from the insurance company for $8,000 and proceeded to live off that for the next six months, um, cashing, crashing on my friend and mentor's couch and um taking experiences to go on other trips and spending time back country and just, you know, kind of scraping by and minimizing these experiences um, or minimizing these expenses while maximizing experiences any way that I could to kind of stretch this out until I could start to get some traction and start to be compensated for the work that I was doing and the work that I was putting in um, essentially working in media. And so for these Next many months, it was uh, very much kind of by the seat of my pants and scraping by on the generosity of friends and managed to plan another trip to Nepal. Um, right after I got back, there was uh, a really severe earthquake there, and I, I raised a lot of money by selling prints and donated it all 
um, all of the proceeds to an organization that was kind of moved on and helping with that. Um, just because Nepal had such a profound impact on me. And after that, I wanted to go back to Nepal. I wanted to see how these friends that I had made were doing. I wanted to kind of see how the tourism was doing and share the story of Nepal post-earthquake to people because their economy is so aligned on tourism. And that I felt that it was very important that people see if Nepal is ready for tourism again. And so that was kind of the motivation between uh, planning a, a second trip back there less than a year after the first. And so for that trip, I managed to get a grant from a gear company called Cotopaxi. And I got some sponsorship money from GoPro to do a little bit of content writing and managed to kind of like piece together some, some small sponsorships that could enable me to go back to that country and to kind of share stories from that place and share what was happening there with the world and hopefully inspire more people to go back there to help jumpstart their economy. And another big part of that was it's very cheap to, to live in Nepal, even as a tourist. I, uh, being very frugal, I could get by with $10 a day. Um, I found a very cheap guest house that was equivalent of $3 a day, and I would have a $7 per day budget for meals, and I could make that work. And so it allowed me to spend several months on and kind of stretch these, these small sponsorship funds uh, onto this trip over there. And it was while I was there that I got a call from Cotopaxi and they said that they wanted me to come on board as their first athlete ambassador and to kind of help them represent and grow their brand. And so I got back uh, right after Christmas. I did a little bit of freelance writing work there, started to kind of uh, get some writing gigs and was doing a, a tri-weekly feature for Red Bulletin uh, online, the, the Red Bull magazine. And so that was kind of like this lifeline when I needed it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, I was kind of, I, I told myself something was going to have to give or I was going to have to go back to work in advertising. And it was that call from Cotopaxi that was kind of the lifeline that enabled me to make a sustainable career doing what I was doing and to continue to do this type of work. Amazing story. That's incredible. And I, I imagine when, when you first started hustling on it and you, you were writing the stories and cropping the photos and, and uh, um, doing all that, that, that legwork right at the very beginning, I imagine that was pretty tough and uh, the dollars probably did not start falling right away. Yeah. But they is did it not exist. I worked for, more than a year for free off of wow. savings essentially to, to try and cut my teeth and, and prove that I had uh, a voice and message that would be worthy of, of, you know, compensation. And it was, it was difficult, but I was able to, to kind of make it work. And a lot of that came through the generosity of friends and mm -hmm. these people who let me crash on their couches and people who, saw what I was doing and, and would help how they can, how they could and starting to get like some small sponsorships from, from companies to do a little bit of content production from my own experiences and, and having uh, companies send me some gear to, to use. So I didn't have to buy that stuff out of pocket and, and different things like that. And this was all kind of um, social media and influencer marketing was very much in its infancy at this point. Like there were bloggers before who had been really successful, but the whole like Instagram influencer thing wasn't really 
hadn't really taken off at that point. So a lot of the initial work that I was doing was um, more commercial in nature, kind of like selling content to brands so they could use them on their advertisements and their catalogs, websites, um, then kind of working more with some traditional media outlets, like selling stories and things like that. Right, right. And I don't, I don't need you to, to, to drop any numbers here, but I, I imagine it's pretty lucrative at this point for you. Uh, you know, it's, it's a tough industry and it's, it's very saturated. And there have definitely been years where I haven't had to worry about work because I've had these really great brand partners and sponsors where I've kind of got a retainer and, uh, you know, just uh, money shows up in the bank account and then they get a file full of photos and Google Docs full of writing and stuff like that. But last couple of years, it's been pretty much strict freelance, which is very much me having to, to kind of bring that hustle back that I had initially and, and do this kind of stuff to, to keep the bills paid. But uh, it's, you know, it's definitely a career path where I've been rewarded through experience and personal growth, um, arguably more so than financially. And it is, it's been okay for me so far through, through having that kind of uh, currency of personal growth, if you will. Nice. That's, that's a good currency to have. Absolutely. So before we, we break for this next segment here, let's, let's go through and just name the, the multi-disciplines, the multi-discipline adventure athletes. So what are the disciplines in, in, encompassed that you have? Oh, man. You have backpacking. Yeah. So uh, you've got alpinist. Sorry. Yeah. You've got skier. Yeah. You've got rock climber. Uh, yeah, I, I climb rock. That kind of is a necessary part of alpinism. Um, okay. I also ride mountain bikes and we'll do uh, bikepacking trips where it's kind of combining backpacking and mountain biking. Um, I got into pack rafting while uh, living in New Zealand. And that was uh, kind of where this idea of a multidisciplined adventure athlete first came to fruition for me. Um, I did this one expedition where we crossed the Southern Alps and we like ice climbed up this outlet glacier. And then we kind of like uh, ski mountaineered over this great divide and then had envisioned climbing some technical ice routes while on that trip, but they weren't in condition. And so we like skied over this divide, got to a kind of glacial outlet lake, pack rafted across this lake into this river, whitewater pack rafted down this river until we pulled out. And so that was a pretty cool experience because it combined, you know, three major disciplines plus some sub-disciplines on that. Um, also dirt bike and ride adventure motorcycles. And oftentimes that'll kind of involve elements of camping and, and riding off-road. And I like to use motorcycles to the, the expedition I had planned for this autumn, which is kind of now moot was to ride motorcycles, uh, dirt bikes off-road across Eurasia and then climb mountains along the way, um, backcountry camping throughout that. Um, those are kind of, uh, some of the, the major disciplines that I've been dabbling in or pursuing. I also would like to look to the sky, but I've not gotten to that point yet. So, uh, I'd, I'd love to add paragliding into the mix. At some Ooh, point. Wow. That, that, uh, I'm, I'm tired just listening to you list those things. <laughs> that that's incredible. Any, any documentaries in the works, uh, on your life or your experiences, because that one trip right there in itself is a documentary just waiting to happen. The, uh, the trip across Eurasia, it was actually going to be 
uh, ridden with a couple of these incredibly talented young filmmakers from the UK. And so we were planning on producing a video series from that. Um, maybe that'll be a possibility in the future. We'll just have to see what that holds. But uh, for now, you know, I'm getting pretty psyched on taking up this discipline of hunting and we'll be doing a lot of that pursuit with uh, compound bow archery, which kind of adds a whole other element of, of discipline and, and sport to that. So mm-hmm. I'm psyched about that. Incredible. All right. Hey, after we get back from the break, I want to talk to you about uh, some, some more of your adventures, specifically the pole to pole adventure that you've got listed on your website. So Stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. I'm Chris Brinley Jr., a multidisciplined adventure athlete and storyteller. When I'm not hanging out on the side of mountains, I'm stoked to be listening to the John Freakin' Nearpod. All right, welcome back. Uh, right before we left, we talked about this expedition you took. Uh, how long ago was it, this pole-to-pole expedition? Yeah, so in the Northern Hemisphere autumn of 2016, I had the opportunity to join Mike Horn, who is one of the, the greatest explorers. Many have argued that he's the, the greatest living explorer. Uh, I got the opportunity to join his expedition to sail from Cape Town, South Africa, to a part of Antarctica that no one had ever landed or explored, and essentially photographed the start of his expedition where he would continue to ski across the widest, longest section of the Antarctic continent solo over the course of, I believe it was 58 days. And then from that point, once we dropped him off, we would sail for three and a half weeks back up to Perth, Australia. And that's where I would debark. So you started off at the near the North Pole and then traveled with him down to the South Pole. Is that how it worked? Um, so he did a full 360 degree um, circumnavigation of the globe through the North and the South Pole. Um, I joined for the section that left from Cape Town to the South Pole. Got it. And then uh, it ended up being a seven and a half week journey on a sailboat that was about 100 feet long, around 35 meters, the 38 meter mast. And up until joining that expedition, I had never spent more than a day on a boat. So that was interesting. To that see. had to be quite an adjustment, quite an experience. Going into it, I thought that I would, uh, I, I knew that I suffered from motion sickness on boats. I had taken ferries out to Catalina Island that would only last a couple hours long and would always get nauseous on those. So I'm like, okay, I know that I get nauseous. I need to to kind of make sure that I can handle this sailboat um journey and so beforehand i like went and got all kinds of like dramamine and different variations of that but me being the more like health conscious person that i am i thought you know i want to try and and kind of quell the seasickness the the more natural way and so while i was in cape town i 
I kind of bought all of these different ginger products. I bought ginger pills. I bought ginger candy, ginger, like dried ginger chews, all these things thinking that if I like ingested enough ginger in my system that I could uh, essentially have like a natural remedy for seasickness. So I, I took all of these ginger products the, uh, the day you were leaving. And then within about an hour from leaving port, I was so seasick that I just could not hold my guts down. So I, I went from the essentially the top deck where I was kind of on the sailboat in the open air and just like my stomach getting wrecked. And I was just so out of it that they essentially had me go down to the garage where I could just like lay down and I essentially proceeded to like puke my guts out into a bucket for eight hours of that first and was just miserable. I had never been so seasick in my life, never had felt so sick in my life. And it literally took me three days of sleeping in the garage after that to just regain my strength to be able to like get up and move about the boat. So that was a, a pretty rude awakening to sailing and as the expedition continued the the passage from cape town to where we landed in antarctica took about two and a half weeks for comparison the people who tend to to take a ship down to antarctica from south america their boat trips are usually about two days maybe three days max and then they get to the peninsula we were on open water for two and a half weeks going through all of these different equatorial zones and kind of zones of latitude that are known for having some of the most rowdy seas in the world. And as we would get further and further south, the water would get rougher and rougher. And essentially it got so bad to the point where I was the only non-sailor on this expedition. There were um, probably a crew of about 10, including Mike, and then there was one um, videographer embedded to shoot for Red Bull. And then I was embedded uh, to shoot photos and to write about the story for Red Bulletin. And so I had never spent time on a boat. The other guy, the, the videographer, Dirk, he had, had spent a lot of time on a sailboat and kind of knew the drill. Um, so essentially the water got really rough to the point to where the crew wouldn't even really let me outside because if I fell overboard in these places where the water is so frigid and so rough by the time they could turn the boat around to pick me up, I would essentially already be dead. So a lot of my time on that ship was confined to being below deck and that in and of itself uh, was uh, a strong realization of where the term cabin fever comes from. And that in and of itself was also a huge adjustment for me, not being a sailor and having never been at proper sea other than just kind of day trips around bays. And so that, that was definitely an adjustment. But once we got to the ice, it definitely felt like I was more of my element, if you will. And uh, we got to spend about a week docked on the ice while Mike was preparing for his takeoff and um, got to experience 24 hours of daylight and had these penguins around who had literally never seen humans before because we were in such a remote area and just got to experience this incredible wildlife up close and kind of 
got to to see all Mike's expedition prep and how he would prepare the kites for sailing and, and all that because a lot of uh, his trip was done um, basically like kite skiing with uh, like a windsurfing kite um, going across the, the Antarctic tundra. So kind of seeing him practice that and choose his kites and get all of his gear prep and all of that firsthand was really incredible. But uh, the most dramatic part of that expedition was once we dropped Mike off and he started his, his solo journey across the continent, we then had to sail the boat back up to civilization. And in this case, um, to get to Perth was, I believe, 4,500 miles. And it took us about three and a half weeks to do this journey. And this was right around the time of Christmas and New Year's. We were kind of sailing through all the major holidays um, to kind of access Antarctica during their summer for, for Mike to have his, his expedition. But um, while we were heading back north, we caught in the squall that lasted about a week. And the water was pretty rough before just being through some of these tumultuous zones. Right. But for a period of a week, we were essentially motoring through what were 35 foot swells with steep winds. And so the boat was getting tossed around like a rag doll. And the nearest outpost, any sort of uh, civilization, there was a military outpost that was kind of in between this continent of Antarctica and in Australia. But that was 2000 miles away from where we were at any given time during the storm. And so if our vessel were to capsize at that point, we would be days and days away from a potential rescue and, and life drafts essentially. And so going through this storm was very real. And my cabin where I slept was all the way kind of forward at the front part of the, the vessel. And I was also on the top bunk. And so we'd kind of go over these, these swells and then the boat, the front of it, the nose would lift up 10, 12 feet into the air and then it would slam down. And I was on the top bunk. And so it felt like every time the boat would slam down, you know, I'm moving 15 feet with this boat. And there are like these nettings to kind of like hold you up onto the boat and and you know maybe all of this sounds really mild for people who who sail and do icebreaking and all this stuff but for me not being a sailor being a guy who feels very secure with an ice axe staff in the mountain I was totally out of my element but it got so intense and so rough that I would have to literally take and tuck my arm underneath my mattress and then sleep on top of my arm to anchor myself in to the bed for fear of falling off this top bunk and breaking my neck while the boat would get lifted up and slammed down for an entire week. I slept like that every night with my arm tucked under my body, trying not to fall off onto the ground. And were you able to sleep? It doesn't sound like a good night of sleep to me. It was not ever a very good <laughs> night of sleep, but you know, the, uh, the kind of tough part about it was at this point, you know, I'd been on the boat for a month. I had, you know, didn't have any roles with 
the sailboat anything that I could do because I just wasn't qualified to, to be out on the deck. And, you know, there's only so much I could kind of absorb from what's going on. And I, I spent a lot of time writing. I, I caught up on a, a bunch of different articles and blog posts, and I read about 30 books during this journey. But honestly, like, I was having such a, a struggle that I would just sleep as much as I could to try and make the days pass as quickly as possible so I could get off that ship. I just, I struggled a lot with that expedition mentally. Um, but while we were uh, kind of in the middle of the storm, uh, one day during the day, I had my Kindle. I'm kind of sitting in this main atrium, which is kind of this common rooms with uh, like a big circular bench around this round table where everybody would gather. And the, uh, the boat would kind of go up and it would slam down. And then we would have all these waves that would like tip us over to the side. And, you know, the boat would kind of, like top and it would ride itself back up but one day while we were tipped over on the side we had the second wave hit the bottom of the boat and it pushed the boat further underwater and so there were moments where I'd like look out the window and it'd be like an aquarium I would just see water touching the window and when this rogue wave came and hit the bottom of the boat it pushed us so far in that the window right behind me, much like this one, totally blue. Oh, wow. And seawater, like Antarctic seawater, started flooding the cabin behind me. And the, the best reference, the best visual reference that I can think of is uh, in Mission Impossible 1, when Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, is having dinner at this restaurant, this little cafe, and they've got this massive aquarium and he kind of sees it, they're onto him. So he like sticks a piece of chewing gum in his mouth and it creates a bomb and he sticks that to the glass. And then this aquarium just blows up and yep. just floods the water out and everybody gets washed out. So that's what it felt like being in front of this window that blew. It was just water rushing from behind me all around me and flooding the cabin. And in that moment, I literally... I, I thought I was going to die. It was the craziest experience to be thousands of miles from help in the middle of this crazy storm. And then to be the one person next to the window, the one non-sailor to have <laughs> this window blow out and, and have the seawater flooding in. It was terrifying. But how, uh, how many times on that trip did you think to yourself, I could be sitting in a cubicle in LA right now? You know, there were no times that I thought I could be sitting in a cubicle in LA, but there were a lot of times where I thought I could be skiing right now. And that would be way more fun. So you, you, you were put on this trip by Red Bull, right? To write for Red exactly. Bulletin and, and yeah. detail chronicle the, the uh, uh, adventures of Mike Horn on this trip. Um, that, that's very cool. What, what is, uh, give me your opinion on, on Mike Horn. I mean, what kind of, what kind of a guy is he? I know he, he, he could be qualified as the, the best explorer ever, but um, in terms of a, a human being, his personality, what's, what's he like? So Mike is like a living, breathing, motivational poster. <laughs> you can't be around Mike and just not be inspired and motivated to be the best version of yourself. Um, through all the, the struggle and, and the, the difficult time that I had on this expedition and kind of the, the dark places that I met, went mentally, the bright 
spots and the bright lights from that expedition were the moments when I did get to have one-on-one time with Mike and just talk to him and and ask questions and and learn about him and his experiences and gain knowledge and insights from him because he's literally seen more of this planet than any person to ever live from sailing around it in many different ways. He like walked solo around the Arctic circle over the period of three years. He went around the equator like solo, like through very a, a many number of disciplines he's done virtually everything and to like have exposure to that type of person is just incredible he's he's highly motivated and he's highly capable but he's also very personable and and he wants to see other people become the best versions of themselves and that was just the coolest part about being around him was was how humbling that would be but also how enabling he is wow sounds like a combination of ernest hemingway and teddy roosevelt and uh, shackleton all wrapped up into one and just all wrapped into one. <laughs> oh man incredible incredible all right i saw that on uh mike horn's instagram this afternoon that he starts on a new expedition to greenland tomorrow I, I saw that post as well. That's incredibly exciting. Um, Eastern Greenland is one of my absolute favorite places in the world. Um, shortly before that expedition with my corn, I was on my own expedition to Eastern Greenland, uh, where my partner and I, who was actually uh, an instructor and a guide who mentored me through my alpinism discipline, we we did this trip together where we paddled foldable corrugated plastic kayaks. 100 miles through this fjord system, made a base camp, and then went and climbed the, the first ascent of an alpine rock route with a glacier approach. Um, so that was probably kind of my first dive into this multidiscipline foray was taking that trip and that, that expedition. And it was uh, by far the most memorable expedition and, and kind of like wilderness experience that I've had. Wow. Wow. How many first ascents do you have? Um... Probably two or three. Uh, we did that first ascent in Greenland on what was a, a 900 foot kind of moderate, like 5'8 alpine rock route mm-hmm. um, with Christian Laneley. Uh, just after the Mike Corn trip, we did the first, um, what we understand to be the first um, traverse of the longest contiguous segment of the Endless Chain Ridge and the Canadian Rockies over the period of about four days of climbing mountaineering. Um, and I think there might be another one in there somewhere, but I, I can't really remember. And I see. Does the name Norman Clyde ring a bell with you? Oh yeah. He was the man. He was I, the uh, man. Yeah. I just climbed a couple Alpine ice routes in, uh, in the Sierra and in the guidebook, these other people have kind of in, in search of glory have named these, these, snow and ice calor is like for themselves but the guidebook author makes a notation that well you know norman clyde climbed every conceivable calor just north of there in the palisades so he probably climbed all of those too it's uh his track record is pretty impressive yeah if you use that if you use that tool the google and you look up norman clyde and first ascents he's got a ton of first ascents 
And uh, we, we kind of detailed the, the, his life and experiences in an earlier episode on the podcast. If you want to go back to the back catalog and take a listen, it's the, it's the one titled, it was, a, it was a dark and stormy night. So it's a story of, of Norman Clyde and how he lost his job as principal of a school uh, in independence and then just took to the mountains after that and everything that he did. Pretty incredible, incredible story. That's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that one out and learning nice. some more. Nice. Now, hey, when I opened up the episode, I, I left you on the side of a mountain in the, uh, in the Himalayas in Nepal. Uh, I think you're maybe a thousand feet from the, from the top and you're, you're questioning, you know, am I going to be able to do this? You're fighting kind of the, the external situation as well as your internal doubts. Um, take us through that. How did how'd you get to Nepal? What got you up on the mountain? And, and did you make it to the top? Yeah, so uh, I kind of, I, I knew on this, this first trip around the world after I'd quit my job that I wanted to, to test myself and, and see what I could do. I had just started to gain some mountaineering experience that same year, and I, I wanted to push myself at altitude and just see how my body would perform. And so I planned this trip to go climb Mjse, um, more colloquially known as Island Peak. It's an offshoot of Lhotse, which is the fourth highest mountain in the world, um, kind of right in the heart of the Sagamartha zone where Everest is located. And this peak, Mjse, is kind of known to be one of the more popular trekking peaks, but it's also a little bit more technical than some of the others. The final slope, slope to the summit is around 45, maybe 50 degrees, and it's like pretty icy. And so all this, you're kind of like traveling over this glacier, and then you climb this final thousand foot ice wall to the summit. And essentially, it's all like fixer ropes, everybody's in a line, and it's very typical commercial Himalayan. and you're just kind of like, you don't even really have to use an ice axe. You've got one for that part. But at this point, you're just using a, an Ascender or a Jumar. You're just sliding it up the fixed lines. you got to transition afterward. And you're just slogging up these, these steps that are pushed out in the ice. It was just, I was very much out of my element at that point. Um, a couple days before, I had taken a nap. I had been feeling really good at altitude, gone up to 15,500, maybe 16,000 feet, feeling great really strong but we had this one day where the weather was so great that I just fell asleep on the porch outside wearing a base layer no sleeping bag everything and it I I woke up uh, a few hours later and you know felt like I had this amazing nap but then by dinner I could barely move and I was just really really weak dehydrated and my guide said that I had essentially gotten a form of, of sun poisoning from being kind of right under the sun at a very high altitude and being exposed to that for a long period of time. And so that night at dinner, I, I could barely move. But the next morning I woke up, I was able to hydrate, I was able to eat, and was feeling a little better and, and kind of felt like I was up for taking this trek to the to the base camp for him to say. And so I kind of went with it. Um, we had kind of an alpine start the the morning of uh, guide woke us up at 1 a.m. and basically at that point gave me the decision. I had the option to climb. I had slept all day and hydrated and ate. It's still been feeling like crap, but you know was starting to kind of recover a little bit. And he gave me that option at, at 1:30 a.m. and I uh, I felt like I was up for it, and so I, I decided to to go for it and, and try the climb. And I, I learned a lot from that experience and, and from those lessons. 
uh, we were essentially in a conga line of people trying to, to make it up this thing. And there were people turning back with pulmonary edema, like all these different altitude sicknesses as we were heading up. And, and that was pretty alarming, but altitude wise, I, I was feeling pretty good at this point. But what I failed to do because we were in this constant state of motion and like, I couldn't reach things for my backpack and all this, I didn't eat anything during that entire day and I didn't hydrate at all during that entire day and so for the probably four or five hours we're kind of climbing up in the morning I was just running off of breakfast and I, I never really stopped the the little bit of food that I did have was some yak cheese but it was frozen and too hard to eat at a, a Snickers bar that was too hard to eat <laughs> and, and just didn't have like anything that I could just like very easily consume and, and to keep going. And so I essentially, I bonked. Um, my body just crashed because I, I didn't have enough blood sugar and, and hydration. And so as I'm kind of like making the final way up this last thousand feet, I was just, you know, half the steps I was taking with my eyes closed. I was just like, the altitude was getting to me. It was, it was just a tough, terrible situation. But ultimately, I did make it to the summit. My, my friend that I was climbing with, we both made it to the summit and had this incredible experience up there. And it was a, a testament of what I could kind of push through and, and make it down. But then on the descent, I still hadn't really eaten anything. And I, I definitely felt myself crashing and felt myself bonking and had a really hard time coming down. And at that point, the altitude, I think, had finally hit me. I vomited into like kind of this stack of, of like a crack and some rocks and boulders and and just had a, a really tough time my um my guy took my pack and kind of split up some of my gear between him and my friend and I managed to get down and, and kind of crashed in in a in our base camp afterward and it was up until that point in my life the hardest most difficult day I had ever experienced and I, I did make it to the summit and I, I learned what it takes to make it down from a summit like that but at the same time, it was a very strong lesson of, of what not to do and how to not handle those situations. And so when I went back to climb a second 6,000 meter peak in Nepal, I was better trained and, and more fit for it. But I also had a better strategy as far as how to hydrate and ensure that I had the right amount of nutrients. And when I went back for that climb, it was uh, just me and a guide and we climbed as uh, pairs, kind of a partnership. Mm -hmm. and um free climb we didn't use any fixed lines for that we kind of were roped together and it felt more like a mountaineer mountaineering experience that i was after actually having to, to do some work with the ice axe but uh i i took like uh some gels every you know every 30 minutes like clockwork and hydrated every 30 minutes like clockwork and just we charged up that whole mountain and it was a piece of cake in comparison it felt easier than going up mount whitney at that point so uh, it was definitely a strong learning experience for, for the, especially the contrast between those two. Yeah, you, you are a, a wise hiker and climber now. Wisdom is based on our past experiences. You've uh, kind of learned what not to do. You've, you've hit the wall and now you've realized how to conquer that. And uh, it's great for us to hear that and to, to learn from your experiences. So fantastic. Incredible, incredible stories. Um, I know that you are involved in a, a, uh, a lot of causes that you uh, are motivated to, to help others and, and help the planet. You want to share any of those? Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't say that there's any particular organizations that I'm 
directly involved in, but there are ones that I, I feel passionate about. I think there are some really human-based issues that we are having to confront right now, and especially in in a year as tumultuous as 2020, there's a lot of racial injustice that has to be addressed. And what I find to be really intriguing is that these racial injustices are highlighted furthermore by climate change. And climate change is perhaps the greatest human problem that our species has ever faced. And it's going to have a drastic effect. And what is most alarming is that it will have the greatest effect on BIPOC, uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and, and people in lower income brackets. Like, it's, it's already proven. There are statistics and metrics out there that show that, yes, this is going to affect everybody, but it's going to affect these particular groups that are already battling great social injustices the most. And so that's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around, um, especially here in the last few months since I haven't been traveling and on expeditions, it's allowed me a great time to reflect and kind of think about my own skills and my own purpose and, and what I feel like I should be doing to, to leave this world better for the next generation. And I haven't come up with the exact solution as to what that is yet. But what I can confidently say is that the experiences that I've had in the outdoors and through adventure, these moments where I've been forced to confront the elements and my own greatest demons and to essentially in, in what have very much been privileged and self-imposed scenarios where I've ultimately had to confront my own mortality I've come out of these experiences stronger and, and more resilient. And I feel like it's my responsibility to take that resilience and apply them into a way that will have a positive and drastic effect on my fellow humans. And especially those people who are most vulnerable um, to, to climate change, to these social injustices. And so what I believe that my entire adventure career has been leading up to is to develop me into a person of strong moral and ethics and character who knows how to handle these grave external stressors and internal stressors and be able to still function at a high level. And what I want to do is, is take the core of me and apply that in a way that can have a drastic positive effect for for the rest of the world fantastic well said we we have definitely have to take care of each other it is uh it's been quite a year and uh it's a lot going on so thank you for everything that you're doing hey we are at that time of the episode chris do you by the way do you have a trail name uh <laughs> if i had a trail name it would probably be and a lot of people on this podcast might get mad at me but uh my trail name would probably be fuck your trail name. <laughs> hey, what's your trail name? Fuck your trail name. <laughs> nice. Nice. So we're at that point of the episode, uh, Chris, I'm not going to call you by your trail name, uh, Chris, uh, where we, we offer up the pro tip insight of the week. What do you have? Have you uh, distilled it down to just one most important piece of advice for our listeners out there? 
there's power in the pivot. Life and plans will never go according to what we have in vision and what we have in mind. And we can either get caught up banging our head against the wall, but those walls will inevitably never budge. But being able to pivot and shift directions in not just a physical approach, but also how we think about things and, and problems and issues will ultimately allow us the, the path of least resistance to solving them and allow continued forward movement, which is ultimately the essence of life. There is power in the pivot, also known as buy the ticket, take the ride. Hunter S. Thompson. Very good. That is a fantastic pro tip inside of the week. One of the best we've had. All right. Let's see. Where are we here? Um, so there you have it. That's it. Episode 25 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Chris. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Chris, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Uh, Chris Brindley Jr. for everything. Uh, it's going to be my website, all my social handles. And I, uh, I don't post all the time, but I do make accounts. So we'd love to see you there. Okay. okay. Can't wait to hear more about uh, your, your hunting excursions and your micro adventures uh, later this fall. So excited about that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. That's a wrap from the John Freakin' Muir studio. Any final thoughts, Chris? You know, stay safe out there and wear a mask. Well said. Thank you for tuning in. And always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're a thousand feet from the summit and all you have is a frozen piece of yak cheese. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. See you out there.